Good morning, everybody. If you're here and you are watching online, I want to welcome you. If you're in Collingswood and watching this, I have a story for you. Uh, this past week, our pastors had our pastors meeting and we got to go down to the Collingswood campus and Pastor Jerry cooked up a breakfast fit for kings. We had pancakes, bacon, eggs, and we're never having a staff meeting here again. We're always going to go to Collingswood. And he actually offered for the Collingswood campus for you guys to have that every Sunday if it's something you'd like. He's more than willing to do that uh, on a weekly basis. All right, we are in the book of Acts this morning. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles. Um, if you forget what book we're in, there's a giant sign behind me. And also, we're going to be here for quite some time. So it's the book of Acts. We're in there this morning. Um, Pastor Mark shared a, a while back that a number of us uh, pastors and some other ministry leaders are part of a, a kind of a cohort that are learning to study scripture in some new ways. And we're doing that in some monthly, uh, every few months, gathering with other churches um, in Pennsylvania. And one of the things we do is kind of go through a whole system of how to study. And one of the first parts of that study is uh, part of this triangle here. If you pull this up, this triangle is kind of a, there it is. It's questions that you ask, and they're not fascinating questions. You probably ask them all the time. But moving from these basic questions of who, what, when, and where to more powerful questions of the text when you come to it, why is this said here? How is this possible? What's going on in this story, in this scene? It's a, it's a great way to study. If you have one of the Acts scripture journals, maybe it's something that you do. Just ask questions, write them down and allow for the Lord to reveal those to you as you study and kind of come back to them at the end, you'll find that as you study through, you'll be able to answer some of those questions because you're reading with them in mind. Um, so we are in the book of Acts. Go ahead and turn to page 855. If you're in a pew Bible, that's where it is. Uh, the morning's message is called Powerful Witnesses Commissioned, okay? We're going to be in verse 6 of chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? These are his disciples. They're asking this. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Are you guys hearing a ring? Okay, a little bit of ringing. Daniel, I'm hearing ringing in my head. Maybe you can fix that for me in my head. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so grateful that you have revealed to us in written word in our day, the story of your spirit's work building the church, 
God, this is not a story about a group of men who had what it took, but a story of your spirit at work in and among and through ordinary and unschooled people. Your spirit is powerful, and God, I pray this morning your spirit would have its way among us as well. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so just to quickly recap, Dr. Luke is the writer. He is a physician, and he has written two volumes. The first book is Luke, his own book, written to a man named Theophilus. He calls excellent Theophilus. Evidently, he was a high-up government official. And so the first Gospel of Luke was written to Theophilus. Then we have the book of Acts, which is volume two of this work. And you see the two differences here. The book of Luke, the gospel, is Jesus at work through his life, death, and resurrection. The book of Acts then takes us to the spirit of Jesus at work through his followers. Acts is a selected history of the early church. It's not expansive, though it tells a number of the details, because Luke wasn't there for that early church history. He became a Christian later in life. And what happened was he joined Paul on this missionary journey and continued his travels uh, later in his life. And so Luke collected all of this data through personal stories and interviews with people and recorded this down that Theophilus and in turn us would have this record of the church. The book of Acts holds 33 years of this history. And so as you're reading through, again, keep in mind a timeline of When these things happened is not just one after the other, but over 33 years. You probably have written down in your Acts Scripture Journal or notes, possibly. Uh, You can even take them on your uh, Church Center app and then download those notes each week. Um, But there are four objectives we will see throughout the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is working. I just want to review them with you. We're going to hear some of them even this morning that may come out. The first one, to carry God's gospel, the good news to all nations. That will show up powerfully today. The second is to sustain God's people amidst every opposition. The third, to fulfill God's sovereign purposes. And the fourth, to unite God's church. Those are the themes. That's what the spirit is doing in and among the book of Acts final timeline to set this up to know where we are today. Uh, We looked at this last week. Resurrection Resurrection Sunday happened. He appeared to Mary and some other women, to some disciples. There were 10 disciples, eight days. He spoke to his 11 disciples. Over the next few weeks, he was in the region of Galilee, appearing to 500 followers, seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, even his brother James. We get to the 40th day, which is where today takes place, the ascension of Jesus uh, on the Mount of Olives. Uh, The question that I had was, why is it super important that the the book of Acts records all these numbers of people that he appeared to? And something for me as I'm reading this is, how can 500 people who have seen the resurrected Jesus not become an absolute force, eyewitness account? in passing on that there is someone who has come, who is now alive, who was crucified. These eyewitness accounts. 
I don't know about you, but as I read, especially a book like Acts, there's kind of a few ways you can come to it. Postures, maybe. You could come as a scholar, someone who really loves history. How many of you are like scholarly, love history, dates, places, timelines? A few. Yeah. Those scholars normally just are like, we are, we don't have to talk about it. Right. Um, possibly you're like the casual admirer, maybe a museum goer. That's beautiful. Those are nice events. You're really interested in like a war or something and you'll study in that way. But I would suggest maybe we come not as those people, not that you have to turn off who you are, but as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, studying the book of Acts to see the mission of Christ in and among us, the spirit that is still at work today. Okay, so we come to the first part that we have three headings we're kind of kind of work through lots of M's this morning. The first is the mix up. And the mystery, six and seven are the verses. So let's read it again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. I don't know about you, but I'm often hard on the disciples. Like, come on guys, how could you not believe and see, understand these things? And we kind of give them a bad name. And I want to just say, this probably is a pretty logical question that the disciples were asking. Why would that be a logical question? Well, if you go back, knowing the last 40 days, Jesus taught about the kingdom. The resurrected, risen Christ is standing there in the flesh, teaching about the kingdom. So are you setting it up now, they ask Jesus. Seems like a reasonable question to ask. But also, as you see there, and we'll fill in some blanks here for you, each of us are narrowly tempted to agendas, narrow agendas, and power. Are you restoring the kingdom to here in Israel, in Jerusalem? Are you going to bring back our influence, our power? Israel expecting to be a national kingdom here. And immediately at this moment, we're going to be part of that kingdom. We've been patient. We've watched your persecution, witnessed your death, Jesus. Here we are post-resurrection. I mean, let's get down to business, right? Come on, to defeat the Romans. And he says, this is not for you to know the times and seasons of which God has appointed Jesus taught all throughout his ministry on earth about the kingdom of God in a lot of different ways using parables. They are still effective today. You and I use them all the time, explaining things to kids, explaining things to people that can't see the things that we do. It's kind of like this. And so Jesus throughout talks about these different parables. One of them is like the kingdom of God is like a a man who's planting a field, sowing seeds and He sows the seeds and in some soil, the the seeds take root and they grow. But in others, the seed falls by the wayside and is not able to grow. Some will accept the message of hope in Christ. Some will not. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, weeds, right? You sow a whole field of wheat and somebody comes along, the enemy comes along and they sow some weeds in the middle and everything grows up and it's just a confusing mess. But the master will come 
and gather the wheat to himself and burn up the weeds. The kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure. The one who sees this and goes and sells everything they have in order for this kingdom to be part of their hearts. The kingdom of heaven is like having some fine pearls. He talks about this parable where he gives everything just for this one pearl, sells all the rest because of one that is so important. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that catches fish and you catch all sorts of fish. But in the end, there are some good fish that are kept and the ones that are not so good are tossed into the fire. So the disciples, as they're hearing all this, probably have this, come on, like separate the weeds out, get rid of the bad fish. We're here, set up this kingdom now. These prophecies in Ezekiel and Joel are are two that really stick out to them. Here's what it says. I'll pour out my spirit and deliver those that call on my name. And Joel talks about this prophetic hope of rebuilding Jerusalem. So this is not a crazy question for the disciples to ask. Even the mother of James and John, remember in Matthew chapter 20, she says, hey, when you're setting up this kingdom with my boys in the kingdom, can one of them sit on the right of you and the other will just, he can sit on the left and we'll all do this together, Jesus. And he politely rebukes all three of them. Why? There's this draw to power, to prestige, to influence. We're all tempted, narrowly focused on the things that we see. Instead, then we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says the secret things belong to the Lord. His plans will always be higher better, more all-encompassing, totally redemptive, motivated by the self-sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Remember, Jesus prayed in the garden. If there's any other way, I'm game for that, Father. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. This is the way we ought to pray. We ought to live in this kingdom, not narrowly focusing on our agenda or our draw to power. The second is the means and the mission. Verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus directs their minds away from this earthly kingdom and takes their minds to uh, what is to come off of an immediate timeline and foreshadows what will happen when the spirit comes to bring power. There's a a man named Alfred Nobel. Um, You may know him because he's famous for the Nobel prize. He was a Swedish chemist and an engineer who lived in the 1800s and Alfred Nobel held more than 355 patents. He became the largest benefactor to the uh, award. And so named after him, the Nobel prize. His greatest achievement, though, was this compound that he made, combining diatomaceous earth with nitroglycerin. I have no idea what either of those are. But it was an explosive-type substance. His version seemed to be more safe than his competitors. And so he came up with a really catchy name, 
Nobel's safety powder that explodes. Kind of get your name out there, make sure people know that it's a safe way of exploding things. But it didn't stick. It wasn't selling. It wasn't really popular. And so he asked his friend, who was a Greek scholar, what's the word for explosive power? And he said, well, the word is dunamis, spelled like this, dynamis, as we would say it. The word is dunamis. Somewhere with his Swiss pronunciation, we get the word dynamite today, which is what he created. He created more versions of that, but that's the word here. You will receive power. You will receive this explosive dynamite power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Not some sort of innate thing. Now that we have Christ in us, we have his spirit, and now we march on in our own strength This is a specifically received power. You will receive this power. You don't have it. It's being given to you. We know that power comes from the Holy Spirit. We also know that spirit-filled believers are to be witnesses as we continue on there. You will receive power to be my witness. The Holy Spirit's work in us produces this witness. This is, again, this is his power given to us, but when the life of a Christian becomes changed because the Spirit just won't allow you to do that anymore, and the Spirit directs you into things that don't make sense to people, as that life begins to change, to look more like Christ, we are filled with his Spirit and look different as his witnesses. It's pretty interesting. In the book of Luke and Acts, the phrase filled with his Spirit is used. It's used about 14 times, and every single time that somebody is filled with the Spirit, there's something that happens right after that, almost every time, two, 14 times. The Word of God is spoken boldly. Isn't that crazy? When the Spirit fills somebody, we might think what the Spirit would do, but every time they just give witness to what's been happening. Spirit-filled people testify about Jesus. They bear witness to his work. Witness is a common word. We know what that means, but maybe you've heard witness before talked about and you're like, yeah, I don't do witnessing. I don't do evangelizing. Those are big Christian words. How do you do witnessing or evangelizing? Well, If anybody's ever been in a car accident or watched a car accident or something of that nature, you've probably been a witness before. We were driving a few weeks ago and um, all four of us were in the car, my wife and two kids, and we're driving down Route 55. It's like pitch black at night. We're driving to see my nephew's basketball game and these two cars zoom around us and right in front of us, there's just us and these two cars, One of them swerves, flips, and lands upside down on the side of the road. We are totally stunned. I'm thinking I'm going to walk across the road and find somebody who didn't make it. Miraculously, everybody was okay, but we became witnesses to that crazy thing that happened. My wife's on the phone with 911, and they're like, no, 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 no. we need an eyewitness. Walk across Route 55 in the dark and go see what you see in that car. And so that's what we did. Um, And again, everybody was okay, thank God, but 
we had to have eyes visual on what was happening. We became a witness to what we saw, what we heard, and we gave testimony to what happened right in front of us. Maybe you've been a a witness, maybe in a a legal case, or you had to give um, a a testimony about something. Oftentimes, uh, when you're raising kids, you're looking for a solid witness to, all right, what actually happened here? Who started the thing right here? And some of you are like, we have a couple trustworthy witnesses and one not so much of those. The Greek word here for witness is martyros. You can kind of see what that word looks like, right? It looks like martyr. That's where we get the word martyr from. And interestingly enough, this is just what happens. Certainly through the centuries, many people, including the early followers of Jesus, were martyred, killed for their faith. And in their death, what happens? A powerful witness springs forth. Many came to know and love Jesus because of the way the followers faced death and gave glory to God. Stephen, we'll see in just a few weeks here, is the one that we see early on that is martyred and gives glory to God. And people, there's this incredible explosion of people coming to know Jesus because of his death. The early church father Tertullian says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's kind of a dark quote, but it's how it happens. People's witness just bring forth what needs to be brought forth in someone's life. Okay, let us see here. God's mission includes all believers to all people. Notice in the verse, we're going on to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have the spirit of Christ in you, If you've tasted forgiveness, if you know what grace looks like because of your own journey with the Lord, if you've been justified, you've you've watched your sin nailed in your place on the cross, God's mission involves you. You are a witness. By very nature of following Jesus, you are a witness to what has happened. We participate in this and we have the choice to be an effective witness or maybe just to kind of cover that up and hide that witness. First Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And why, how are you okay in this situation? Like, there's no way you should be joy-filled. There's no way you should have hope here. Why do you have that hope? I need that hope. What is it? Slam dunk right there. That is the conversation of witness. Titus 2, it says, how we live is our witness that people would, as they come to bring charges against us, they they really don't know how to do that. They can't bring anything bad to say about us because of the way that we live and function as witnesses to Christ. We've been changed. We live that way. It is our witness. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is right where they were located, their hometown. And then we know it kind of breaks out. Judea is their own culture, kind of in the the same region, but it's not really the hometown. Samaria then breaks out. It's a nearby culture, though different from Jerusalem culture. 
and then to the ends of the earth, including everyone not born of Jewish heritage, the Gentiles, where Jesus is unknown. Those circles keep building out, which we'll get to here in a minute. John Stott says this, Christ's kingdom tolerates no narrow nationalism. He rules over an international community in which race and rank and gender are no barriers to fellowship. Giving you a second Tertullian quotes, two in one sermon. This is like really church fathery. Um, 204 AD, he's writing in this uh, Roman empire. He's in the North African region under the emperor Severus. And this is what Tertullian says. We are but of yesterday and we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We have left nothing to you but the temple of your gods. The pervasive nature of the witness of Christ goes forth. We're everywhere. We're in every place. All you have left is a place to worship your gods, those temples. Adolf Harnick is a German church historian. He says it this way. We cannot hesitate to believe that the great mission of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries. Informal missionaries. Does that classify you? Do do you feel like you informally have this calling to be a witness where you are? Ever met somebody that doesn't even know that they're a witness, but as you're talking to them, you're like, man, you are a bright shining light for the Lord. And someday that's going to just explode. People are going to know because of what's inside of you. I met someone this week and um, a friend called and said, hey, I'd love for you to connect with this guy. Um, He's newer in his faith, um, but he's, well, I'll, I'll let him tell you his story. So he came to my office. Uh, We sat for more than two hours and he was telling me his story and something like this involved early in his life with the demonic realm, just chose to kind of go into all of those things of darkness, friends with many people who claim to worship Satan. And he describes this long, dark and terrifying journey of seeing and visualizing these things happening all around him. He dove headlong into the things of the world, trying to satisfy whatever it is that was missing. And finally, one of the friends, interestingly enough, who introduced him to this Satan worship kind of uh, life said, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but you're supposed to talk to God. And he said, this is really odd. Okay. I think I'll just, I'll go talk to God. God meeting in the middle of this whole realm here. So he started praying. Somehow he got a hold of the gospel of John and started reading through the gospel of John. He was given some sermons and uh, he started devouring the truth of God. And what seemed like in a miraculous turn of events with nobody around, no formal setting with pews and a pastor, he gave his life to Christ. Radically, this immediate release of the weights and struggles he'd been carrying. The spirit of God truly lives inside of this kid. Someone who'd been depressed and anxious and without hope 
was now sitting across from me in my office and his eyes were smiling at me. I have chills even thinking about this, but I just couldn't even imagine like what was dark is now been made totally light. With tears in his eyes, he said, I've never known this kind of love and joy and peace before. It's one of the most moving experiences I've had to date as a pastor at our church. Bowing and lifting his hands in worship to King Jesus. And I said, man, I got to tell you, this is crazy. God's spirit is so in you and he's going to use you in some incredible way just as a witness. And I wondered sitting there like, why isn't the church more like this? Why aren't we people more like this? It seems like oftentimes, maybe it's just pastor complex, but it's like, read your Bible more, pray more, love him. He's so good. Um, if you just spend some time with him. And I, had, I didn't have to do that. This child who had come to Christ was so transformed. He just couldn't get enough of Jesus. And as we talked back and forth through this tension, he said, well, if the spirit's alive in somebody, this is what's going to happen to them. And I'm like, do you want to preach on Sunday? Cause this is exactly what I'm talking about. If the spirit of Jesus is alive among you, you have a story. A sinner once dead is now alive. It's his story and we ought to tell it. Number three, the majesty and the motivation verses nine through 11 here. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Let's just pause there, right? This physically happened, right? This is the nativity last scene in real time. A cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Okay, first here, awe produces joy and worship. Jesus departs back in a cloud. The disciples are looking. The better translation is they were gazing into heaven. Think of like a child that lets go of a balloon. I had thought about doing that. And Tim said, yeah, then you could tie it to a string and pull it back down. And I lost it right there. But think about a child losing a balloon and they, you just kind of like watch it go off into the distance. That's what they were doing. They were just gazing. <laughs> this cloud just took this man and he's, Gone? Like what? And we don't have the specifics in the book of Acts, but if you go back to the book of Luke, the end of Luke, Luke 24, you'll find what happens in their amazement. 24 verse 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed the disciples. He blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. It's been one of the craziest 40 day journeys they've ever had. He's resurrected. He's teaching about the kingdom. Crazy few years. He'll be with them and the spirit is coming and then he's gone. You would expect them to feel so sad and alone and abandoned. 
And yet there is joy and there is worship and they race back to the temple. Yes, the places and the spaces that Jesus was just handed over into death. And here they are, the disciples blessing God. This confirmation of the divinity of Christ possibly motivated them in a way they hadn't been before. Second here, the the promised hope requires us to join. It's a compelling end to the message. If you think about the last part of the nativity, as I was reading it, I'm like, man, Pastor Jim's narrative really made sense. A new story was promised and there was great hope, right? He's coming back. Go and live in obedience, making disciples, be my witness and wait for the spirit to come. You will receive power. Jesus had already rebuked them with his words about the kingdom. It's not for you to know times and seasons that God has planned. Romans 13, Paul says, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Don't forget he's coming back. The promised hope requires that we join being witness to him. He will return. Think of those parables that he taught about. He will come and divide the wheat from the weeds. He will come and take back his children. Go and live as his witnesses. Now, it's customary at the end of a sermon to give some um, applications, action points. I've given you all the fill in the blanks. So here's what I want to do this morning. It seems like this is an incredibly obvious application. Maybe you've already had a few. Possibly you've written some down. Names of people, places where you need to go. So I want to give you a few misapplications, things you should not walk out and continue to do this morning. The first is this. You should not continue focusing your attention, looking for nations and dates and times as to when the kingdom of God is going to come back. What does that do? It deters us from in real time right now being a witness. Let God be concerned with the appointed times for everything. Be awake now to what he is doing. Second, we should not hold on tight to this earth, his kingdom, his will, whatever that looks like, your goals or your aspirations, hopes and dreams. Does all you want scream Christ? Does all you live for, does all of your money point to everything we want is Christ? Third, we should not witness in our own strength. We have been given the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us this witness. There's a group of us gathering and um, one of the things we're talking about is just learning how to continue to say yes when the Holy Spirit prompts us. Maybe it's in a conversation. Maybe it's to not do something or to do something. But what if we practiced just responding yes when the Spirit prompts us? Maybe gives us a a passage or a, a piece of scripture that really convicts our hearts. What if we said, yes, I hear you, Lord. This is speaking to me and I do need to move. Learning to pay attention to ways he's working and just start following him. And as we learn to follow, we'll see incredible power on display as we witness. Maybe it's somebody just gets brought to your mind out of nowhere. You're driving on the road and somebody's name comes up and you start praying for that person. What's God doing with our witness? 
we should not forget the word receive. Fourth, in all things, in all of life, in all of our stories, God moves first. He acts, he wills, he intends, he gives, he loves the first and the best he does. We can't lose this connection to the the gratitude that we have. It's not my spirit that's going and taking over and conquering things in the name of the Lord. I've been given this spirit. Okay, last one. With hesitation, I, I read these words to you. We should stop thinking and acting and defining missions as overseas. Now, I say that because we have some great missionaries who do not live in our country. Of course, they are supporting and carrying the gospel to all nations as we know they should. But many of us even support overseas missionaries, this formal calling. And I'm not saying they are not doing the work of the Lord, but I want to speak to us. The majority of Christians do not live in the United States. In fact, many countries who we have missionaries in are sending them here. What do we do with that? Missions is not an overseas project or venture. This is not offensive. This possibly could be an exciting thing that we have just as much opportunity down the street, on the sideline, at the store, wherever it is to be a witness. And I'll say this, we have missions trips and I have been, oh man, through the years on some incredible times where uh, God has used me, God has used our teams to bring the, the hope to people. You should not go there and preach the gospel if you can't live here and preach the gospel. Because play this out. How many of you have been on a missions trip before? Some of you? Okay. A lot of times you get there, you go on this missions trip and surprise, what do you have to do when you go there? Tell people about Jesus. It's not like you all of a sudden quick switch and you do something different. That's the mission here as it is there. Why would we have to fly across the world to start doing that? If it's how we're living Yes, then we should go in all ways to the ends of the earth. This little graphic at the end, just to remind you as we pray, is it there? Acts 1-8 circles going out. Okay, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. There it is. They're starting in Jerusalem. They're moving outward to the ends of the earth and God will do that. But he doesn't say, start by traveling a long way away and tell those people about Jesus. He says, Jerusalem. There's a lot here, lot to unpack. Um, And the book of Acts is so exciting because it's not about a great bunch of men uh, carrying the message. It's about the spirit at work. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you praise this morning. I don't know why you said it would be better if you left, but All I can see is that your spirit is so actively at work. And there you are, seated at the right hand of your father. And we get to live as your witnesses here and locally and uh, further out, just these rings that spread out to to the ends of the earth. Lord, protect us 
from sitting here and guessing about times and dates and when you're going to do this and that and lining up with this kingdom and making our nation most important. Your kingdom involves the ends of the earth. And so we ask God, lead us here and there and wherever you might to be your witnesses in your spirit's power. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. You are dismissed.